0: I have more material than I should, so some of it I'm going to go over quickly, but you're welcome to look at it at another time. And it's going to lead you to countless, nearly countless other outlines. Lord be with us now as we study the doctrine of salvation for a few minutes from the standpoint of this controversy between Calvinism, Arminianism, and the truth. I'm going to start with this letter that I got yesterday after I sent out the Tuesday update. Good morning, Jonathan. I'm especially looking forward to the slide presentation Wednesday night on one of my favorite subjects and the one the Lord used to open my understanding and settle for once the perplexity that I carried within me. You may remember that it was the subject matter in the document, Calvinism, Arminianism and the Truth, that brought me to the church after seeking out information on the meaning of Arminianism on the website. I also got a second bonus besides the meaning of Arminianism, and that was an understanding of Calvinism, specifically the sovereignty of God that I immediately grasped and believed. I read that article throughout, including all the verses, plus many more articles that day, from morning to Saturday evening. And at some point called Patricia, to inform her that I was going to church on Sunday and asked if she would come with me. I'm very thankful for the important, exhaustive writing found in that document that brought understanding to me on many perplexing issues that I was witnessing on church practice and teachings, including the lack of fruit among professing Christians and the meaning of true regeneration. I'm thankful for the availability of the website, which is a wonderful soul-winning tool and a beacon of light and truth to this dark world. I'm thankful for the faithfulness of God to lead us into truth. I'm thankful for the power of God and His control over the lives of His creation and His decision alone that stirs up the lives of His people and causes them to turn to Him, and that He powerfully saves those whom He chooses. I'm thankful that I was privy to conversations that caused me to know that I could seek out answers on the church's website. I'm thankful that there were those who were willing to come to church with me that Sunday, 11 years ago. Lastly, I'm thankful for my son who knew that we, as a family, were Arminians and brought it to my attention, inciting me to do a thorough search on the subject since I lacked this knowledge of our practice. This person closed with this verse John 16:13 Howbeit when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak and he will show you things to come Who was it Mary Carleton Mary I loved meeting you that first Sunday She had lis- she had read and listened to limited atonement and she loved it, she told me. Women don't typically love limited atonement their first pass through, but she did. Amen. That's an encouraging email, as you can, and I hope you enjoyed Amen. hearing it yourself. Yep. Here we go Calvinism, Arminianism, and the truth, the controversy about salvation. You need to grasp these two terms. They're commonly used in some circles, they're not used as much today because everybody's ignorant today and they don't care as long as there's a praise band. They help us identify one's view of salvation. There's more to this topic in our short little review tonight. There's many, many documents on this subject. The names come from two men. This is John Kelvin, living in the years 1509 to 1564, before our King James Bible. A French Roman Catholic lawyer and James or Jacobus Arminius, who lived after John Calvin and opposed him in the nation of Holland. There the two men are. This is John Calvin and Calvinism and James Arminius and Arminianism. They're named after these two men. These two theological schools by which they're named. Never, never write Armenian. For Armenian, it tells everyone that you are an illiterate idiot. Do not do it. I see it many times. Never write Armenian for Armenian. Is a pen a pen? An Armenian is a person from Armenia. Armenia is this country right here. That's an Armenian. Is a Nazarite a Nazarene? Not even close. Let's learn to define no terms and use the right ones. The names come from two men. John Calvin, Calvinism, James Arminius, Arminianism. If you want to know more about the two men, Google them. I'm not going to entertain you about the two men. I don't care anything about either of them. Calvinism was the state religion in Holland, established by the influence of John Calvin and followers. The Arminians in 1610, one year after James Arminius died, confronted the state of Holland, the government, with what was called a remonstrance of five points against Calvinism. Arminians came up with the five points, not Calvinism, not Calvinists. The five points summarized the controversy, but it was five points of Arminianism... Against Calvinism, but today they're called the five points of Calvinism because the way that they're presented and the way You know them is from a Calvinistic standpoint not the Arminian Only the well-read or frequent debaters know the extent of this controversy there have been wars fought over this this controversy between Calvinism and Arminianism is huge just check out the history of the Southern Baptist Convention from its founding It has divided nations Look at Holland. Holland. Holland had a serious issue on its hand by the influence of James Arminius. It's divided denominations. There's a whole segment of the Southern Baptist Convention today called Founders, the Founders' Segment of the Southern Baptist Convention that are Calvinists in a relatively Arminian, a very Arminian denomination. It's divided churches, it's divided families. Five points of Calvinism have nothing to do with the five phases of salvation. Right. Please, please, they're not even, yeah, I guess, they're both theological. They're both Bible-based, but they don't have anything to do with each other. The five points of Calvinism, I'm going to go over with you right now, the five phases of salvation are something the Lord's taught us. You know, the eternal, legal, vital, practical, final versus tulip. They're, They're different. Don't confuse them. And this is why we're going over this tonight. Your children should memorize some of these things, like starting right now. Your children should know this. It's a shame that it's not taught like it should be. TULIP. Can you see the TULIP, Miriam? Do I have it right this time? (laughs) Okay. That's a TULIP. And here is the acronym TULIP. And the letters of TULIP stand for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Our children should know that. TULIP, it's an acronym. We're not dealing with flowers tonight. It just represents five doctrines. These are Calvinistic doctrines. These are the doctrines of Calvinism. They oppose the five points of Arminianism. I'm going to go over them again. This is a tulip. Tulip is the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Adam, I liked your example. I'm going to go over them again. I have a tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. We agree with the first three, we reject the last two. Thank you, Calvinists, for leading us a little way. We do appreciate the Calvinists. We thank God for sending us Calvinists at a time in our lives we needed it to save us from Arminianism. And I thank God for that, and I shouted my thanks and praise on the way to church tonight, that my wife had to listen to. They did help save us from Arminianism. Our early, and it's basically my, early Calvinist helpers were Jonathan Edwards. And I was introduced to him at Bob Jones University that hated Calvinism. I was warned that if I kept reading Jonathan Edwards, I would be kicked out of the school, like others were at that time, for learning about Calvinism or talking about Calvinism. There was a Baptist church called People's Bible Church at that time in town that was off limits because it was Calvinistic. When I was a student at Bob Jones University, they hated Calvinism. I'm thankful for Lorraine Bettner, who published books freely and sent them out. The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner was a great elementary presentation of Calvinism. John Owens, one of the most logical, intelligent men that's ever fought for Calvinists. He was a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. He wrote the the most thorough defense of limited atonement that's ever been put together that I know of. Arthur Pink in the Sovereignty of God, John Gill, the Baptist, John Bryan, his companion, a Baptist, Eternal Justification. Yeah, that's the name of his book. Eternal Justification and Charles Spurgeon, a moderate Calvinist. But he did at least give lip service to the five points of Calvinism. I'm thankful for them. There it is again. T for total depravity, U for unconditional election. L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. The acronym spells TULIP. It helps you remember those five things, and our children should know them. Total depravity. Here we go, and we're going fast. Total depravity. What did the Arminians say to the government of Holland? Man sinned in Eden, but he still has a free will. He can choose to obey God, he can respond to truth. He obeys first to be saved. That is the Arminian position on man's nature. Calvinism responded by saying man sinned and he died in Eden. And we agree with the Calvinists on this. His nature is totally corrupt. It's usually called, it's, it's often called, not usually because usually it's total depravity to get the tulip. It's often called inherited depravity. How we inherit a nature that is against God. He cannot, man cannot, man will not obey. God's truth is foolishness to him in that state that he's born in. He must have a new nature. I hope you can see the difference. We always disagree with Arminianism on any point of salvation because it's not in the Bible. We agree with Calvinism here because it is in the Bible. And here we go, in the Bible. God told Adam of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Man isn't sick or wounded by the fall in Eden. He's dead. Calvinists believe that. We believe that with them. Or we believe that before them because the Bible taught it a long time before John Calvin. I hope you understand that and that I believe that. That every one of our forefathers in the faith that was true in doctrine believed it before John Calvin was born, a hundred years before it, five hundred years before it, six hundred 1,000 and 1,500 and 4,000. Psalm 51.5, David wrote, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Shapen, I was formed with a corrupt nature. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. We're liars from birth. Psalm 14, David wrote, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Were there any? They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That is also in Psalm 53. It's in the Bible twice. Paul picks it up and quotes it in Romans chapter 3 when he wants to prove the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, as it is written. What's he referring to? Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There is none righteous. No, not one. This is total depravity. This is tea of tulip. Look at what Paul wrote. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. If no man can understand, what are you going to present to him to get him saved? Calvinism is true. The truth is true. The Bible is true. And we believe this passage of Scripture overwhelms and crushes Arminianism that man is only sick and wounded. They are all gone out of the way. They are together becoming profitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That's the nature that a man has from his first birth. He doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Present them any way you want. It doesn't matter for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. A natural man needs to get a spiritual nature. His natural nature isn't good enough. The Arminians are wrong. Okay, that was T. More verses are on your page. More could be said. There isn't time to say more. Unconditional election, we're to the U. Children, what's the T stand for? It's not up there, James. You can Total depravity. Amen. Unconditional election. What did Arminians say about this word that they don't like? God loves all men equally. He wants to save them all. He chose the ones that he looked down and saw believing. So it's conditional election. He looked, saw, and responded to what he saw. He would not do otherwise because God would never make a choice like that. That's Arminian thinking. He elected those, meaning he chose those that chose him. Or, he chose those that elected him. That's their idea of election. Calvinists came along and said, God loves only some men. He will save all of them. He chose them by his own will. Otherwise, none would be saved if he hadn't made that choice, because they would never make a choice for him. His choice is the basis for all that happens to them in the way of salvation. We totally agree. We always disagree with Arminianism because it's not in the Bible. We agree with Calvinism here on this second point of unconditional election because it's in the Bible. And here it is in the Bible. They love to quote this verse, but they don't know the third part of it. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. See, God has a purpose in the lives of some men. This group right here and all things work together for good to them. For the children, speaking of Jacob and Esau, the twins that were in the belly of Rebekah, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, so I guess God didn't see anything in the part of Jacob there, that the purpose of God, God had a purpose, and it was according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. God makes the appointments and the ordination of men's future destinies, and it's called his purpose, And he did it before they were born and having done anything good or evil. Hath not the potter power over the clay? It says later on in that chapter of Romans 9. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That's a question. What is the answer? Does the potter have such power and authority? Absolutely. And now he explains it. What if God? This is not a question What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. This is the word of God. We submit to it. We believe it. We trust it. We love it. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, according as he hath chosen us in him that is in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Amen. It's God's will and God's pleasure that predestinates and chose us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began, right. who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. We're saved by God's purpose, his own purpose, his own grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning Chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. John 17, 2, Jesus in his high priestly prayer of that chapter, as thou hast given him, Jesus speaking to his Father about himself, as thou, God the Father, hast given him, Christ, me, power over all flesh, that he, Christ, should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's election. God gave Christ certain ones for Christ to give eternal life to, though Christ had power over all flesh. That's you. It's time for L. Limited atonement. Who did Christ die for? Arminianism. God loves all men equally. Jesus died for all their sins. His death did not save any. Men must accept his death to gain the benefits. Men go to hell for unbelief. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says men go to hell for their sins. And those sins are listed in Revelation chapter 21. All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. I wonder why they're still liars if Jesus paid for their sin of lying and they they go to hell because of unbelief. That's an Arminian gymnastic effort to get around the implications of their doctrine. That's what an Arminian says about who Jesus died for. He died for all the sins of all men. John Owen did the death knell to that whole idea. For any of you that want to wade through the death of death and the death of Christ. What do Calvinists say in response? And we agree with them. God loves only the elect. Jesus died for all their sins. He was a substitute for each of them. Jesus Christ was. They obtain all the benefits. Not one can ever be lost. Amen. We always disagree with Arminianism because it's not in the Bible. We agree with Calvinism here on limited atonement because it is in the Bible. Matthew 1.21, the angel speaking to Joseph about his wife Mary, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus did save, actually effectually save his people from their sins because those are the ones he died for. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, But the will of him that sent me, what was the will of God? Well, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, those of the elect, from unconditional election, the you. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus Christ will not lose a single one of those the Father gave him in election. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said in John 10. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And in that chapter, there's a, there's a sharp distinction made between those that are as sheep and those that are not. In the Gospels, there are sheep and there are goats. And Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And he's going to tell them later, after saying this in verse 11 and verse 15, he says this in verse 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Listen to Jesus speak to the Jews around him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them, sheep, eternal life, and they, sheep, shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them, sheep, out of my hand. My Father, which gave them, sheep, to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. There's election. My Father gave them to me. This is what we believe. This is what you should remember. This is what you should be able to explain to a person if you run into someone in this town that might know a little bit about theology and soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We were enemies, Paul writing to the Roman believers in Rome, we were enemies, we were reconciled, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus is not going to let a single one that he reconciled to God be lost because he now is using his life as an intercessor at the right hand of God to guarantee the salvation of those that he died for. Amen. Romans five nineteen: For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, this one man is Adam, in the Garden of Eden, were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, this is Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Jesus obeyed for the elect, and they're all made righteous by his obedience. Husbands, we're talking about who did Jesus die for? We're answering that question. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He didn't love everyone, or this is meaningless. He loved the church. He gave himself for it, or it's meaningless. If he gave himself for everyone, what kind of an indication of love is that when he sends them all to hell? I mean, those that he sends to hell. Irresistible grace. We've been, through two, we've been through TULIP, so far T, U, and L. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Irresistible grace. The Spirit convicts all men. <laughs> Creation, conscience, hummingbirds, whatever. Some obey for regeneration. This is what Arminians say about irresistible grace. God's vital work on men. Some obey it, and they get born again because they obey it. Most resist the Spirit's work. So grace is resistible to an Arminian. And we're talking about the grace of regeneration and conversion. God cannot violate their will. He's got to wait on them for them to make the choice. He waits on them to obey. That's what Arminians believe about grace and whether it's resistible or not. Calvinism. The Spirit convicts all the elect. He uses gospel preaching to do it. He gives the faith to believe it. The elect cannot resist him. All elect believe and obey. The Spirit convicts all elect. He uses gospel preaching to do it. He gives the faith. They can't resist. All elect believe and obey. We disagree with both camps here because neither are in the Bible. Irresistible grace to us. God regenerates dead elect. By resurrection power, period. Yep. Like Jesus himself was raised from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1. They are totally passive without any cooperation. From an Arminian standpoint or a Calvinistic standpoint. They are totally passive without any resistance. We are talking about regeneration. God does not use the gospel to regenerate the elect. Right. God uses the power of the Holy Spirit and the spoken voice and word of Jesus Christ. Amen. The elect may resist or fall away from conversion. The gospel is for assurance and practical benefits. The gospel is not for regeneration or for eternal life. That's what we believe on the eye of Tulip. We differ with the Calvinists. Arminians, let me try to summarize a little differently. Arminians, irresistible grace is heretical violence. God would never... Make somebody do something they didn't want to do. Arminians, man has free will. God never forces anyone. That's just the way they talk. Calvinists, grace is irresistible in regeneration. Grace is also irresistible in conversion. Truth, grace is irresistible in regeneration only. Grace is resistible or lost in conversion. That's what the Bible teaches over and over. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. There's no cooperation in either camp with regeneration. This is how men are born again. Right. There is no cooperation. None. You don't preach the gospel to, some, to a dead man and get him to do something in order to become a living man. Right. The gospel itself does not bring that life. God must give that life, then they respond. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 1. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to the brothels and malls of Rome. What does it say in Romans 1? You know, everybody wants to quote this verse. Every missionary conference I've ever had to go to wants Romans 1.16, but they don't know Romans 1.15. So as much as in me is, how much does that leave for the brothels and the malls? So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you. And he has already commended these people as having their faith spoken of throughout the whole world. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ to preach it to you that believe it along with me. Because we're going to stir each other up by the mutual faith, both of you and me. That's verses 12 through 15. For it is the power of God and a salvation to everyone that believeth. The preaching of the gospel does not convey power directly. The preaching of the gospel reveals power. It's the the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes the message. They obtain information, news, and knowledge about the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul wasn't wanting to preach to those people at Rome in order to save them by some power by his verbalization of Jesus Christ and the gospel. He wanted to encourage them and comfort them. These are the words used in the context, and share their mutual faith together. For therein, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed, because that's what the gospel does. Look, from faith to faith. If a person hasn't already been given faith, then you're preaching vain, you're preaching vain, your preaching is vain because it will not accomplish anything. If someone says, well, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing of the Word of God, it comes into activity and has something to believe. It doesn't come into existence in Romans 10 17. Right. It comes into activity when it hears something to latch hold of and believe. The faith is given by God in the work of regeneration. And when he opens a person's heart like Lydia to attend unto the things that are being spoken, God does that work. The gospel doesn't do it. The gospel can't open a heart. The heart's gotta be open, then the heart embraces that gospel. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It can't help a perishing man. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's not foolishness. Look at this, this foolishness. Does the gospel convey foolishness to a person? Does it carry foolishness into a man and make him depraved? No, a depraved man hears the gospel and thinks it's foolish because that's all he perceives from the gospel, and the gospel being the record of Jesus Christ. But a man who's already been saved, are saved, he hears the gospel, and it conveys and reveals to him, and he perceives in it the power of God to save men. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, we don't care what they want. Our market survey told us what they wanted, we don't care. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, our message is a stumbling block. They don't like it. Unto the Greeks, our message is foolishness. They don't like it. But unto them which are called, those that have been ordained to eternal life and regenerated, both Jews and Greeks, what do they get? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Here's one of the examples of unconverted elect in the New Testament. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies. A certain category of elect Jews were rebellious against the gospel in order to send the gospel to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, that's what it's about. Detailed exposition on our website. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. When it comes to the gospel, they're enemies. When it comes to election, they're beloved. A unique category. We do not, we do not comfort, suggest, anyone being in that category. God has his examples in the New Testament that fit with everything else he teaches us, but we require everyone to believe the gospel. Hebrews 4. Why would Paul write this if it wasn't possible? Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us, New Testament, was the gospel preached, as well as unto them the generation that came out of Egypt. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. How could these, at Paul's writing, that were beloved brethren, end up in the same category as those? Because they were elect, but they didn't believe the gospel. First Corinthians 10 tells us they ate and drank of Christ coming out of Egypt, but God was not well pleased with them, so he overthrew them in the wilderness because they didn't take the land of Canaan when they were supposed to. God can chasten us and take away our lives in this world for not obeying Him practically while we still have eternal life. Can you think of a church in the New Testament where many were sick, weak, and many were dead already in the church cemetery? Corinth. Corinth. And do you know what what Paul wrote? When we are are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Notice their death for sins was practical chastening to prove they had eternal life. How's David's baby going to be in heaven? But now he is dead. David speaking about his infant son that died. Wherefore should I fast? Why should I keep fasting? I've been fasting for seven days. Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. How does he get there? By our doctrine of irresistible grace. Perseverance of the saints. We've been through T-U-L-I. Now the P. Arminianism. Honest Arminians can fall from grace every hour. They get saved again, 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 again. Most Arminians today are not honest Arminians, are not historical Arminians, so they say you cannot lose it. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And what they mean by once saved is once you made your decision for Jesus, you're locked in There's no joke like that taught in the New Testament of some momentary decision for Jesus that locks you in for eternal life. I'll tell you what locks you in for eternal life is God electing you before the foundation of the world, Christ dying and justifying you on the cross, the Holy Spirit regenerating you. That locks you in. It's called, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called them he justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. Now that's God locking you in. One decision is good forever is the Arminian idea. They reject lordship duties. When you invite Jesus into your heart, you can't call him Lord, or that's involving works for salvation. That's how sick they are. I know you can't believe that, but you've got to read about it sometime. It's hilarious entertainment. Calvinism. All the elect make heaven. Amen. The Spirit keeps their faith. What? The faith of many is overthrown in the Bible. He keeps them living holy. What? What about a lot and a Samson? You're going to call that holiness? Holiness? What about Corinth? You're going to call that holiness? Abusing the Lord's Supper the way they were? No, he doesn't. We disagree. They will persevere persevere to the end. No, they won't. God hasn't guaranteed that. They cannot finally backslide. Really? Then what was Corinth doing? What did Samson do? And other examples. We disagree with both camps. Perseverance of the saints. God preserves his elect. He doesn't guarantee them persevering. Perseverance is the elect being active. They're persevering. Preservation is the elect being acted upon by God. God's the one acting. God preserves his elect from losing eternal life, but God does not guarantee that they're all going to persevere in holiness and faith and righteousness. God does not force them to faith and obedience by any stretch of any sovereignty of God. Elect faith may be very weak and lost at times. It is God's faithfulness That counts, not the elects. Abraham, Lot, Samson, and Paul are all saved alike and in heaven. Many fall away in gospel doctrine and or practice. Perseverance of the saints, Arminians, you got yourself in, keep yourself in. That's how they look at it. Those are the honest ones, the consistent ones. Arminians, your choice is key. Ignore persevering. It don't matter. You made your decision for Jesus. You wrote it down. I was there. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life and what you've been doing. I was there. And so they preach him right into heaven. I was there when he made his confession when he was 12 years old and lived 70 years of hell-raising sin in life. And now he's died at 82. He's in heaven because I was there. At summer camp when we were four years old and we invited Jesus into our heart. That stuff isn't taught in the Bible. Calvinists. God guarantees, elects faith and holiness. Backsliders will repent before they die. Really neat. Corinth must have had a real revival. I don't know why Paul wrote them 1 Corinthians 11. No two elect are the same in obedience. Their sins or false teachers wreck havoc in their lives. Why would Paul write Corinth and say, I fear if a preacher comes along preaching another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, you might well bear with him because they very well could. Our minute, I'm gonna jump some slides. Listen, that clock back there is jumping off and slapping me on both sides of the face. Um, Here's a couple on perseverance. If they break my statutes, how much perseverance is that? And if they keep not my commandments, how much perseverance is that? Then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, nothing about guaranteeing their perseverance, Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My faithfulness isn't going to fail. My loving kindness isn't going to fail. I'm going to preserve them, but I'm going to chasten them, but I'm not going to guarantee that they're not going to break my statutes and keep my commandments. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. Oh, so you can fall from grace. That doesn't sound like persevering but they're going to repent before they die. Show me one Bible verse. You don't have one. I'll show you Corinth. This is the brethren at Corinth. You're only saved by the gospel if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. I thought God was going to keep it in their memories. No, we've got to keep it in our memories. We've got to stir each other up. We've got to gird up the loins of our minds. Look at Paul to a minister, Timothy. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. There's two things. Timothy, take heed to your personal life. Two, take heed to the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things. For in doing this, in continuing in those two things, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. What if Timothy doesn't do that? He's lost, his church is lost. This is a pastor that is lazy personally or lazy doctrinally, can take a church down, lose their practical salvation, lose their fellowship with Christ, fall into false doctrine and practice, and there is nothing to stop them except the backstop of God if he chooses to intervene. There's duty laid upon us. That was Corinth. This is preserved. Look what Paul said at the end of his life. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and he has caused me to persevere unto this very day, to whom be glory forever and ever. He didn't say anything like that. He said, "God, the Lord will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, and that's what gets us there, not our perseverance. The Calvinist favorite verse for perseverance has nothing to do with eternal life, and I hope you'll memorize this. If you like little cuties that are lots of fun when you meet a Calvinist, this is one of them. Matthew 24, 13. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. It's in every work of perseverance by any Calvinist. It has nothing to do with eternal life or salvation. You say, but it says saved. Yeah, well, why don't you read the context? That's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Matthew 24. How dare we sit in judgment of great men on both sides? Because Elihu did. There is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. We're nothing. Do all of you know what I mean on Sunday when we have communion and I say, I wish I wasn't leading this service? Do all of you understand what I'm talking about? We're nothing. I'm nothing. But God is glorious and gracious and has blessed us abundantly, and we give him all the honor, all the glory. We're willing to change anything. If there's four phases to salvation and not five, I'll tear five phases to shreds. If there's six, we'll come up with another column. If there's nine, he's the giver of truth. We're nothing. We're his servants. David. I understand more than the ancients. I have more understanding than my teachers, and I'm wiser than my enemies, because I trust your word. Listen, those men shouldn't intimidate you at all. They can't even most Calvinists can't even figure out the subject, mode, or purpose of baptism. Most Calvinists are Presbyterians. They can't figure out who should be baptized, how they should be baptized, and why they should be baptized. They are so inconsistent and ridiculous, they won't even serve communion to those poor little brats. I mean, christened brats. There's only a few men in the world, a few few honest Presbyterians that stuff the Lord's Supper down the throats of their infants. There are. I respect them. I do respect them. They're consistent. If you can baptize them, give them the Lord's Supper. So don't be intimidated by these men. Jonathan Edwards, do you want me to go through that list again? Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, all of his intellectual prowess, he couldn't figure out baptism, and if he did figure it out, he was afraid to confess it publicly because he had been thrown out of the synagogue to be with us lowly little uneducated countryside Baptists. I love it. I want to be God's babe. I'll tell you anytime I'm a jackass. I'll tell you anytime how wild I am. I just want to be God's ass. He can ride me. He can spur me. And I want you to be that with me. I want us to beg God to show us anything he wants from his word. Yes, I overdid it. But it still is just a survey. Okay, here's what we close with. What must I do to be saved? You need to repent of your sins. Every single person here tonight. You need to repent of your sins. Sin is offending God by transgressing his law. Repent. Admit you are wrong, he is right, and you are going to live differently. Repent. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Add works to your faith and continue. That's what you need to do to be saved. Because that's what the Bible says you need to do. These five responses that I just listed are evidence of election, evidence of justification, evidence of regeneration, and evidence of your future glorification. Those five responses are conditions for your conversion, assurance of eternal life, fellowship with God, knowledge of the truth, fruitfulness in Christ, peace and power in your life for the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how it works in the Bible. When we go back here, when we repent of our sins, we have to already be born again, or we wouldn't be able to repent, we wouldn't choose to repent, it should be obvious to you. So, when we repent of our sins and believe on Christ, get baptized, add works and continue, we're not doing anything to the work of Christ for us, it's already finished. So it's just evidence. But if you want to know that you're saved, if you want to lay hold of it and realize its full benefits, then you do those five things and look what, look what you get. And that's just starters. Those are just summarizing it. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? You've talked about election tonight. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? Same as above. Paul, we give thanks to God always for you all the church at Thessalonica, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, faith that changes lives, the work of faith, the labor of love, love that actually serves others in a costly way, the labor of love and patience of hope. Your hope in Christ is so great that it causes you to cheerfully endure negative events in your life, like persecution and martyrdom, in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we know, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Notice, there's nothing in here, there's nothing in here about inviting Jesus into your heart. But if, you have a, if your faith works and shows a changed life, and your love is one that shows real service to other people, and your hope causes you to cheerfully endure this world, you're elect. 2 Peter, beside this, giving all diligence... It's our diligence. It's not God's guarantee of perseverance. It's our diligence. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith. Faith is really nothing. And by itself, the Bible says, it is nothing. Add to your faith virtue and then knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. Eight things that we're supposed to give diligence to do. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, look at the same passage give diligence to make your calling and your election sure. For if ye do, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so, in the way that I've just described, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how you get into heaven. There's the entrance into heaven, the everlasting kingdom. Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do you know? How can you make it sure? Election sure. Right there. You can make election sure. You can make your election sure. To yourself. It's always been sure to God. You can make it sure to you. By doing those things. That's why they're called evidence. Faith and the works. Added to faith. Make it sure to us. It's sure to God because his will is always sure and Christ finished it and put that everlasting covenant into force by dying on the cross. Everybody wants to be in the camp of the Calvinists or the camp of the Arminians and we want the camp of the Apostle Paul and the written scriptures. And that's where we are. We'll agree with Calvinism on the first three points. We deny them on the last two points. Grace is resistible in conversion. They say it isn't. God hasn't guaranteed perseverance. How much perseverance is there going to be since so many fell away? You start asking them questions like that, they fry. You ought to see any Calvinist, the sharpest you've ever met in your life squared, because I can read sharper ones than you've ever met, you ought to see them in Hebrews trying to deal with the four passages of Scripture that are like candy to us. Not because we're smart, not because we're wise, because God's been kind to us. And I give him all the glory and I hope you're giving him all the glory with me and that we'll hold to these things. And we're just going to go ahead and close tonight without singing electing grace. It's written by our resident song leader who isn't song writer who isn't here tonight. But stand with me and let's close with prayer. And may God bless each of you. Heavenly Father, with Jacob we say, in simplicity and sincerity of soul, we are not worthy of the least, of all the mercies, and of all the truth that thou hast shown us. We thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for the spirit that inspired that word and has convicted us by it. We thank you for the the way that you have led us to the truth. We thank you for some help from Calvinists, We thank you for some help from Arminians before that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for primitive Baptists and they led us out of the Calvinists. We thank you for leading us out of some of the primitive Baptist ideas to what you've shown us today. And Heavenly Father, here we stand. If you'll show us something different or new, we'll follow it. But it's going to require a tsunami of evidence from your word. We thank you for what you've shown us, but most of all, we thank you for saving us with an everlasting salvation by your electing grace in Christ before the world began, his finished work on the cross of Calvary and his life now of intercession at your right hand, the power of the Holy Ghost regenerating us, and Heavenly Father, the mighty glorification that is guaranteed to us that will take place soon, for we all shall be changed. We thank you for salvation, complete and whole, We thank you for opening our hearts, opening our eyes, showing us the truth, sending beautiful feet to teach us. We are mightily blessed. Go with us. Heavenly Father, I've got a young generation sitting here that hasn't gone through the wars and controversy that the older one has, and I pray that you will bless some of these young men to be filled with fire for this stuff. That a fire will burn in them like it did in Elihu, who put up with as Bildad, and Zophar for a little while, but then he had to speak and he was angry about it. Fill them with a vigor and a rigor for study and to learn and to oppose false doctrine and to stand for the truth to keep this church in orthodoxy and against heresy until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us for not living up to the gracious salvation that you've shown us Forgive us for wherever we have squandered your grace and received it in vain. Bless us to use it with mighty diligence to be your faithful servants here in Greenville. It's in Jesus Christ's glorious name we commit ourselves to thee for time and eternity. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.